stay in Isaiah 64, but I actually want to start this morning reflecting on the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son story that Jesus tells, the parable that he tells, is one of our favorite parables. It's one of uh, any, if many people who, who know it pretty well, most people who know the Bible love that passage almost more than any other. It's a beautiful story, right? So you may know it, but let me just sort of rehash it briefly so it's in our minds as we get into Isaiah 64. So there's a, a son who says, Father, give me my inheritance now. Which for, in that culture, for a Jew, Jewish boy to say that to his family was like saying, Dad, I just wish you and Mom and everybody was just dead and gone and I just had the money that is coming to me. That's what he's saying. <laughs> he takes the money and he goes into a far country. He goes into a Gentile area. And there he begins to spend it. He begins to have, according to the world standards, right, a pretty good time. He's, he's having a lot of fun, and a lot of people are, are coming to him. He's accumulating friends. Until when? Right, until the money runs out. When the money runs out, the friends desert him, and he can't, he can't find work, he can't find lodging. He finds himself utterly destitute. He ends up working at a pig farm, which if you know anything about the Jewish people and their sort of culture, that's an extremely degrading situation. So he's working at a pig farm, feeding the pigs, and he... It says he comes to his senses one day when he, re, when he was staring at the pigs eating and just thinking like, I wish I could eat like that. I wish I could tuck into their supper the way that they're, they're digging in. And he says, what, what am I doing? I wish I was like one of the pigs here. And he thinks, you know what? Growing up, even like the, the lowest servant in my father's estate got three square a day and a warm place to sleep at night. And I got none of that. Now, I, I can hardly bear to think of going home, but I'm going to go back and I'm going to tell my dad, listen, I don't deserve to be treated as a son anymore. I, don't de- I, don't deserve a- I have no claim to anything of yours, but if you would be willing, for old time's sake, to let me be your lowest servant here, I just need three square and a warm place to sleep. It's way better than I deserve and it's way better than I've got or have any hope of getting. And so you know the story, he begins to head home with this. He's, he's rehearsing this scene in his mind, he's planning it out, what he's going to say. And then the ca- camera angle switches and we see the father. We don't know how, how, if this was a habit of the father or, or what, but he's watching in the direction that his son left. And he sees him while he was a long way off. And he knows it's his son. And he runs to him, right? Takes him in his arms, brings him back, calls his servant, says, get my best robe, get my ring, kill the fatted calf. We're going to celebrate because the son of mine who was lost has been found and the one who is gone has come home. It's this beautiful story and we love it because so many of us can identify with it. Right? So many of us have been in situations where we have rejected God's mercies, God's graces on our life. We've been ungrateful. We've gone, we lived for the world, lived in the world's ways, and then we come to a place where we think, what am I doing? What am I doing? And then the Lord works in our heart and brings us back to Him. And of course, the Lord is there waiting and ready for us, and, and it's, a, it's a wonderful thing, right? So many of us identify with the story of the prodigal son. When Jesus tells this story to Israel, they would have all identified with it as well as individuals, but more so, they would have understood that the prodigal son story was actually a story of Israel. It's a story about what Israel did, and more so, what Israel did many times. 
right, left the Lord, left the worship of Yahweh, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt and the land of slavery and put them in the promised land, left him, went and served other idols, went that direction for a while, right until then they were on the bottom, looking fondly on pig slop in a pig pen somewhere. And the prophets calling them to repent, calling them to come back, and they do. For a season, there's a sweet season. The Father welcomes them back. Over and over again, this happens. Over and over again throughout the story of the Old Testament. And so when we look at the prodigal son story, it's not so much that we're looking at a story that you and I have gone through, but that we've gone through over and over again. If you look at the story of your Christian life, it's not just that one time you were in the world's clutches, one time you were living in folly, and then you came back to Jesus and never left him ever again. That's not our, that's not our story. Right? The Christian life is a, a series of kind of unpleasant cycles. An experience of closeness with the Lord. And then there's a drifting, a distracting. We sort of descend into the world's clutches where we sort of realize then at some point we come to our senses and we realize I've disgraced myself. I'm in despair. We repent. The Lord, of course, welcomes us back. This is the the cycle. We would like our Christian lives to be sort of linear and upward, right? Just always getting better, always getting smarter, always improving. Apparently we don't learn that way. Apparently, that's not our learning style. We learn by running our head into the low, the low doorframe repeatedly in our Christian life. That's how we learn. Where are you at in the cycle this morning? Are you here feeling just the closeness of the Lord is just delighting in His, uh, his leading, His loving kindness? Or like what Brian described this morning, did you just resonate with that? Like, Lord, I'm in a hard place, but I'm close to you, and that's all that matters. Or are you more like in that kind of that second, that, that curve downward where you're like, well, you know what? I'm here, God, okay? And if we could hurry it up, that'd be cool. I'm here and, and I'm distracted. I'm busy. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm into projects here that like, I, I know you need me here to worship you a little bit, but I kind of need to get back to stuff. Or are you here this morning and you're sort of at the bottom, right? You're like, good grief. Maybe it's not painful. Maybe, maybe it's just numb. I, got, I don't know what's going on. I got nothing. I feel lost. I feel empty. I feel alone. This is what Isaiah 64 is here for. It's for you. It is a prayer. Isaiah 64, the entire thing, is a prayer. And it is a prayer of God's people when they are at the bottom of that cycle. Now, in the story of the book of Isaiah, it's a big book and it's a big story. The first sort of chunk, the first chapter, was back in the days when Israel was really prospering and flourishing, right? They were rich. They had a great military. Everybody was waving Israelite flags and they were singing Israelite songs, but there was an under, under level of injustice, inequality, oppression, and with that idolatry. The second chapter of Isaiah, judgment on that, God sends his people into exile. They're in Babylon, where there they think, well, now there's no hope for us. God's angry with us. But the message of Isaiah is, hey, God's promises are still holding true. He will bring you back. He will will keep all of his promises. Now they're back. The third chapter of the book of Isaiah. Now they're back from exile. And so everything should be good, right? But it's not good. They've got some serious problems. 
So we're going to look at these problems briefly. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this because this isn't really what our chapter is about, but we want to kind of name them. Look at verse 2. The first problem is adversaries. He, he makes his prayer, Lord, rend the heavens and come down that the mountains might quake. As, as when fire kindles brushwood, fire causes water to boil. To make your name known to your adversaries that the nations might tremble at your presence. We know from the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah, stories told about and by these guys who had come back from exile to the promised land. We know that there was people there then, just as there are people now here in your life and mine who do not want returners to follow God. There's always people in our lives whether they're people we know personally or whether they're sort of voices in the culture, voices in our media diet who are saying, threatening us, if you keep going that way, this is what's going to happen. Mocking us, slandering us. And this can be very painful, right? Outright persecution can sometimes actually galvanize our faith. No, we're going to stand for Jesus. But can we endure being made to feel dumb? And that's really where the exiles the, the, those who have come back are. They're surrounded by people who are like, what are you doing? Really? So they've got these adversaries sort of nipping at their heels as they, look at verses 10 to 11, as they take on some big projects. This is the circumstances that they find themselves in. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned with fire, and all our pleasant places have become ruins. This is, the, this is what they're back in the land to address, to take on these big projects. And so their situation might be compared to, and perhaps you're in a situation similar to this, climbing a sand dune. Have you ever tried to climb a steep sand dune? On the western side of Michigan, on the lake of, this is Lake Michigan right here, right? Yeah, on the eastern shores of Lake Michigan, I was camping with some friends, and there's a, a sand dune there that's pitched really sharp. And it's probably, I want to say 1,000 a, a feet high, but it's probably more like 40, 35, 40. <laughs> and, and my buddies and I, we're going to climb up to the top of it. So, you know, we're in a youthful exuberance, and we tear up this sand dune, and we get about halfway up, and right, the initial sort of like momentum and elasticity and all of that is gone. And now we're stuck in the middle of this near vertical sand dune, like on a stairmaster thing, right? We're just foot in, down, foot in, down. Uh, I don't think I've ever had that kind of burning sensation in my quads as on, in that moment, in that place. And this is what some of our lives are like right now. Just, I can't stay here. I have to stay here. I can't stay here. This is where the returners are at this point in the book of Isaiah. And so they're, they're crying out to the Lord. They need his help to face just these obstacles without factoring in the internal problems as well. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. Picking up about halfway through verse 5, Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? Now we could talk a lot about this next verse here, but I just want you to observe at this point the effect that sin has on the prayer here, on Isaiah. He says, we've all become like one who is unclean. Right, so the sin in his life makes him feel an increased sense of shame. 
All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. So they've also got these sins. And the effect of sins in their life, the effect of sins in our life, is an increased sense of shame and a decreased sense of strength. Right? More and more they feel unclean, which makes the adversary's job a lot easier. Right? Have you ever been in a kind of a situation, a condition, and, and somebody who's sort of antagonistic to you just comes up and just says, really? They don't have to do anything, right? The adversary just says, really? You're, you know you're unclean. And then there's an increase, a decreased sense of strength, right? The circuit, what, what they're trying to face, he says, we've just become like leaves. Like leaves aren't going to climb that dune. We, can, we got nothing for this problems that we're facing. The last problem that they're up against is... Sins make the adversary's job easy and our circumstances impossible. For those of you following along. The last thing is that there's a lack of worship. Lack of worship, lack of discipleship. Of course, this is kind of a consequence of what's been going on, but it's another problem. Look at verse 7. So we've got these adversaries. Now think about this situation, right? We've got these adversaries over here. We've got these huge circumstances here. We've got all this sin and shame in here. And what does he say in verse 7? There's no one who calls on your name. No one who rouses you to take hold of you who rouses himself to take hold of you. Right? They're faced with all of these things and they're not praying? Now, this, is an, this is another big problem. So, the main point of Isaiah 64 is, very simply, we need God to work for us, adversaries and circumstances, and we need God to work in us. Sins, lack of worship, lack of discipleship, We need God to work for us. We need God to work in us. So now let's look at verse 1. This powerful prayer that Isaiah 64 begins with. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations might tremble at your presence. Just as when you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down and the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you. You're the only one of of whom this is true. You act for those who wait for you. So he prays, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. What does that actually mean? It's kind of a vague request, right? But the, the awesome presence of God has many awesome results. And especially for stuck people. This is a good prayer for people who are really stuck, right? I don't have any more, I don't have any more hope. I don't have any more ideas. If I had ideas, I would have hope. If I knew what to pray for, I'd be praying for that thing. I'd be working on it. I'd be addressing it. I've got nothing. Just, just come, God. You're my only hope. I've got nothing but you. You are my only hope. Are you there yet? Are you there? What do you need the Lord to do? Do you need God to work for you? Do you need him to work in you? What is it this morning for you? Now, Isaiah 64 is it's about the people of Israel, but it's, always, it's pointing them towards the one in whom all of their hopes are ultimately going to be met. 
Right? All of our hopes, we know this from the story of the Bible, all of our hopes are ultimately answered in Jesus and what He does by His presence in our life. All of our hopes are going to be met in Him and answered in Him. But for now, just confining ourselves to Isaiah 64, again, the solution to their problems is pretty clear. We need God to work for us. We need God to work in us. And so, and I love the way verse 7 says this. It says, uh, there's no one who calls upon your name, no one who rouses himself to take hold of you. How do we take hold of God? How do we take hold of God? What do we have to do? Right, different religions, different cultures have different answers to this question, right? Loud singing, self-injury, big gifts of money or, or livestock or other things that can get God's attention so that he'll work. What is it for the, the biblical God, for the Christian tradition? Well, I'll look at verse 4. One of my favorite verses, I think one of the most significant verses in all the Bible, but Brian's been telling me that I say that every week here. Verse 4, from of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No one has seen a God beside you who acts, who works for those who wait for him. So, who will, what will induce God to work? Waiting. Waiting on him. And so let's talk about what waiting on the Lord means. What does it mean to wait? And in answer is Isaiah 64. This whole prayer lays out a model and is an example of what it means to wait on the Lord. And what we're going to discover very briefly here this morning is that waiting is hard. Now I'm going to, I'm going to outline four things that we see in this text as it, as it develops that describe what waiting is. It would be natural and easy for us to kind of take these as like four laws, four rules, four steps to getting what you want from God. That's not what this is. This is not an outline for what we are to do to work, to get God to work. This is an outline of what waiting involves. And the first thing is radical confession. Radical confession. So right after verse 4, let's look at verse 5. Again, verse 5, Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we've been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. This is a pretty radical confession. When he says, we, have all, we are all unclean. This is sort of a technical word in the Old Testament. Lepers in the book of Leviticus, if you had a a contagious skin disease, it was incumbent upon you to notify everybody, unclean, unclean, unclean. It was just about the most shameful thing that could happen to an Israelite. To have to tell everybody, don't touch me, don't come near me, you know, six feet social distancing. (laughs) I'm unclean. Do you ever, you ever uh, find yourself in a social situation and it's a little bit warm and you realize, did I put on deodorant? <laughs> I've never, it's never happened to me. Um, in that moment, right, you're like, you, you want to, like, un, unclean, unclean. 
Wait, what's he saying here? He's saying, we stink. Do you stink? Are you good? We stink. And he goes on and he says, and all our righteous deeds, pay attention to this, all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. I like the King James on this, right? Filthy rags. Filthy rags. Now, when you think of filthy rag, and I think of filthy rag, right, we're thinking like shop rag. Like, oh man, I'm wiping some dust off on that, and I probably wouldn't want to towel off with this after a shower, but it's not like it's that bad. He's thinking dirty diapers. He's thinking rags full of wonderful surprises, right? That's what he's thinking of. He's saying our righteous deeds are like that. This is a radical confession. What Isaiah is saying, friends, listen to this. He's, saying, it, it, he's not saying just take stock of your bad things. He's saying get honest about your good things. Get honest about the stuff that you're doing that you think makes you look good. He's saying, hold on, let's freeze frame this and take it frame by frame. Look at what's happening in your heart. Look at all of the selfishness that you're doing this with. All the resentment and the bitterness. All the pride. Look at how you're doing that nice thing so that they'll think better of you or so that they'll know that they're worse than you. Or, ugh. He's saying, unwrap that little garment and it's full of pollution. He's saying, look at the way you're doing it. And you're not giving any glory to God. You got, you got no, no thought of God and what you're doing. It's all about you. If we could see not just what's going on in our bad things, but in our good things, we would be very sad with ourselves. This is the confession that Isaiah makes to begin. You know, in John 3, right before uh, Jesus, before, right before uh, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, Jesus has this interaction with a guy named Nicodemus. Now, it's not really much of an exaggeration to say that Nicodemus, this teacher of the Jewish law, this, is one of the top ten most respected, godliest, most Bible knowledge, most mature in the faith, human beings on the planet. He's a top-level member of the Jewish ruling, religious ruling group who was sent by them to go meet Jesus. And he's supposed to kind of uh, forge some sort of uh, alliance with Jesus. Like, Jesus, you obviously got a lot of gifts. We could do a lot for you. We could platform you. We could give you better advertising. We could move this around and get your message out there, and I think we can work together. And, and the conversation shifts, and Jesus tells Nicodemus, you, great, mature, wonderful, godly teacher, you just need to be born again. You get what that's saying? Like, you just, your whole thing, just, you just need to start over. That's how, that's how bad we are. That's the real situation here. We stink. We, need, we just need to start over. This is a radical confession. And this is how waiting starts. This is how this prayer begins, with radical confession. You know, radical confession is the opposite of saying, God, would you, would you please work for me and let me show you all the good things I'm doing. You see this? You see this? I think you should work for me. God, I think you should work for me and let me explain to you what happened to me. Here's all these things that have happened to me and you should, you should work for me. Or God, you should work for me. Look at all the stuff that they're getting. <laughs> you know, they're getting it. I should be getting this too. This is the opposite of that. This is saying, God, I got nothing. This isn't self-hatred. This is just being brutally honest, telling the truth about ourselves without any sort of self-protective spin. God, I'm no good. I have no hope but you. 
See, waiting is hard. It's not hard work, but it's hard. Waiting is hard. Here's the second thing, and it's related to this, is radical humility. Let's keep going in our text. Look at verse 8 with me. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are all your people. Now, first let me just say, nothing creates real humility like real confession. You want to really be humble? Get really honest. But look at the prayer in verse 8. How low do you need to get to pray, Lord, we are the clay, you're the potter? What is that prayer? That's him saying, Lord, whatever. Whatever. Whatever you need to do. Whatever you want to do, do it. That's a big, scary prayer, isn't it? How low do we need to be to pray, Lord, whatever? Now you might say, well, he says, Lord, you are our Father. Which almost sounds like Isaiah is trying to remind God, before I pray, Lord, whatever, do whatever, I want to remind you, you're my Father. But there's some situations where that doesn't even matter, right? I remember my kids being little and, and being at like a pool at a hotel or something, and, and I'm standing in the water, right? Like, and they're right there on the edge, and I'm telling them, jump in, right, jump in. And they're thinking like, listen, I know you're my father, but there's a good chance that I'm going to get splashed in the face, and I'm not about getting splashed in the face with water, okay? So I don't think I'm going to jump in. I think I'm going to go over to the stairs, and I would say, come on, let's go, jump in, it'll be fine, I'll catch you. And they weren't having it, right? They weren't having it. You, know, you drop them a couple times, and they never come back. <laughs> Some, sometimes we know that he's our father. But are you willing to say, whatever? That's a hard prayer. Uh, I'm the clay. I'm the clay. You're the potter. Do whatever. So much of our, our spirituality is sort of a, a analogous to our, our health, physical health practices. Right? I think most of us have some sort of like a, a health bargain. The best articulation of this I ever heard was a friend of mine who said, I hate jogging, but I jog so I can eat as much ice cream as I want. <laughs> this is the kind of bargaining that we do with our health, right? Well, what kind of bargain do you strike when you get on, this, when the, you get on the operating table for them to deal with a life or death situation? Right, you say, you say, whatever. Whatever you have to do, do it. I don't care what it is. Deliver me. Whatever you have to do, do that thing. How close, friends, are you to saying this morning, Father, whatever? That's how close you are to seeing the Lord work. The next thing we see here is radical honesty. Look at verses 10 to 11. And as we read this, notice the contrast between these things. Verse 10, your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire. And all our pleasant places have become ruins. This is a, this is a moment of radical honesty for Isaiah. Saying these things that are supposed to be great, that should have been great and wonderful, now are terrible and awful. God, I've... Uh, I remember the early days of our marriage. We were, we were so in love. It was so beautiful. It was so full of hope. And now it's in shambles. 
This holy and beautiful thing in shambles. I remember that when my kids came into my life, it had changed my life. These beautiful gifts from God. And now I feel like I'm losing them. I had this sweet faith. I felt like you were right there with me all the time. And now I feel like I'm in darkness all alone all the time. This is what Isaiah is doing. He's getting really honest about his situation. He's been honest about himself. Now he's getting really honest about his situation. Here's these good things that should be good, and now they're terrible. I know not everybody loves the 12 steps and the recovery uh, movement programming. I'm a big fan of them, and I'll tell you why. Probably the, the, the number one reason I'm a big fan is, is the first of the 12 steps. Is when we come to admit our lives have become unmanageable. This is a radical act of honesty. My life is unmanageable. I mean, it gets to the question of what is it that you want God to do? Like, I just give me a boost. Just give me a bump. I just need a little bit. I just need a little bit. I'm, I'm mostly good. I'd say at 85% there, I just need a hand. Is that the relationship that we ought to have with God? God, just help me out. I mean, Isaiah's praying, Lord, we need you to do awesome things because really in an awesome mess. I need you to do awesome things because my life is awesomely wrecked. The last thing here at the very end of our text and at the beginning are radical requests. So look at verse 1 again, or just listen to me as I read it. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That's a big request. And now look at the end. Look at verse 12. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? How do you feel about that prayer? That's pretty direct, isn't it? Like, he, there's not a lot of, uh, he's not soft-pedaling this at all. He's saying, will, like, God, stop restraining yourself. This is a very big and very direct prayer. And we see a lot of this in the Bible. We see a lot of direct, angry, even exasperated prayers. And we also see a lot of big, hairy, audacious prayers. God, do something big now, just do it! Which can sound like, uh, like the prayer is being arrogant. Like, you better... But it's actually the opposite. It's the embodiment of lowness. It's the person saying, listen, I'm done. I've got nothing. I've got no strategy. I've got no plan. I've got no maneuvers. I've got no energy. All I've got is you. You've got to do something about this. That's it. This is the prayer of somebody who's got no other recourses. Who've got no hope but this God. You know, when you call 911 and you got two bullet holes in you, right? And they say, 911, please state your emergency. You don't say, hey, I, just, well, how are you? <laughs> right? They would say, sir, do you have an emergency or get off the line? If you say, well, I mean, I've got, I've got a couple puncture wounds. They would say, okay, let's, like, we don't need to talk, we don't need pleasant cheese right now, right? Permission to speak freely if you're in a bad way. Now, prayers don't have to be raw. It's not like God's like, come on, get real, get real. It's not like some improv night where he's trying to push you to, like, disclose all the worst things every time you pray. But there's just some times, right, when you're at the bottom of the cycle. And you're like, 
Well, then listen. Let it, let it go. Stop playing at discipleship. You don't have to dance around. He, I mean, he knows, right? So let's start with that. And he wants you to share yourself with him. So radical confession, humility, honesty, requests. Because sometimes we, we, need God, we need God to work for us, and we know it. We know that we need God. And some of you are there this morning, and some of you aren't. Well, God wants to work. He loves to work for us. He loves to rescue us. He loves to restore us. He loves to be with us. He loves to be glorious for us. And, and he will. But here's what Isaiah 64 says. It says that God works for those who wait for him. God works for those who wait for him. He works for those who wait for him so that he gets seen. He likes to get seen. And he likes to get praised. And he likes us to, to see him. Right? We love to see God in our lives. We love to see that he's with us. We love to see that he's working. It's the sweetest things in life is to know that God is with you. And all of this depends on us waiting for Him to work. So if you're here this morning and you're waiting for God to do something big and good in your life, listen, He is eager to work for you. He is eager to work. And here's how He works. He works as we get real about our sin. When we get real about our sin, He's working already. When we get real about our situation, He's working already. When we get real about our longing for Him, He's working already. When we say, God, whatever you want to do in my life, just so long as you're the one doing it and you're in it, then He's already working in our lives. Can you pray that this morning? If you can pray that, if you will pray that, that means God is already at work. And again, to be clear as we conclude, I want to say again, these are not four steps or four rules or four laws for getting God to do what we want. All we've been unpacking in Isaiah 64 is that moment in the prodigal son story when it says he came to his senses. That moment when he says, this is ridiculous. I'm going home, whatever happens. And we know what happens, right? We know what happens every time we go home. Because he's our father. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word of hope. There's a lot of hard things in this text, a lot of things that it's hard to hear, that it would be hard for us to say. But Lord, I pray that you would work in our lives. I know that all of us have things in our life that we feel hopeless about. And so we need you to work now so that you bring us to a place of being really honest, so we can be really humble, so we can be really real about our situation, and we can be real with you and direct and clear and as we go through that, Lord, we know that you are bringing us to yourself and you are preparing us to work in our lives. Lord, 
I pray that you would work now. As we take just a moment, we pray, Lord, that you would work in our lives because we need you. We need to see this. We need to see you. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down and that you would deal directly with those situations in our life. And Lord, would we become a people who wait on you, who don't run and try to fix our lives without your involvement or with only modest involvement of you. Lord, we need you. We need you, Father. And so we ask all this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.